that becomes a living lab inside of a living lab inside yes. of a living lab. <laughs> Returning into inception. <laughs> but also seriously. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. the last thing we want to do is carve off a wing of this new building and say that's where innovation happens. Right? It's got to be the whole thing is a lab, but it's, it's nested and tessellated and like just messy like a, real, like a garden gone wild. Hi, I'm Naomi Mahaffey, and welcome to PAUSE, an Alberta Social Innovation Connect podcast. In this podcast, Albertan changemakers pause to reflect on the work they're doing together to address the root causes of messy problems in their communities. We create space for reflective dialogue between people who are working together to understand the systems they work within, to co-create new solutions or approaches, and to learn from their successes and failures. In today's episode, we chat with Cynthia Watson and Chris Kelly Frere from the Calgary-based organization Vivo for Healthier Generations. Yeah, does Vivo have a theme song yet? No. In my head, whenever you walk into a room, the Batmobile theme <laughs> plays. Oh, I love it. That's <laughs> that works. Vivo is an organization on a mission to raise healthier generations in Calgary and beyond. They are a recreation center and much more. Vivo's team works on upstream or preventative solutions to improve the health of children, youth, and families in north-central Calgary. They describe their work as a living lab because of how intentionally they bring research and development, or R&D, practices into everything they do. Other changemakers we've spoken with have mentioned that they look to Vivo as an example of how curiosity, evidence, and strong community connections can spark innovation and create impact. Our very own Elise Martinoski sat down with Chris and Cynthia to learn more about what Vivo's work looks like, what tensions they face as they seek to do this work well, and what they've learned through their change-making journeys. Well, hello and welcome to our guests from Vivo. On today's episode, we have Cynthia Watson and Chris Kelly Frere joining us. And to get started, would each of you be able to introduce yourself along with the role you're in at Vivo? Thanks very much for having us. Uh, Cynthia Watson, I'm the Chief Evolution Officer at Vivo for Healthier Generations, and I have the great pleasure of uh, being the mission master for our social innovation work that we do as a charitable enterprise. Lovely. Uh, welcome, or hi. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> you can keep that in. Uh, <laughs> so Chris Kelly Frere, I'm the manager of the Vivo Play Project uh, and also the senior innovation designer at Vivo. Uh, my role is mostly to be a fire starter and to try to spool up one of Vivo's first major social innovation startups. Lovely. That's great. <laughs> um, well, before we dive into kind of the reflection piece of what it's like to be doing this work, we'll do a bit of background overview of the organization what Vivo does and who they are. Sure. So Vivo is a charitable enterprise. We are 15 years old this year. And our roots really started in the community as a regional recreation center. And over the last 10 years, the, it's evolved into being a cause, which is about raising healthier generations and making a bigger impact in the world. And now we're kind of looking at where the next version or evolution of the organization will be is how can we be a cause that has a recreation center, but we have many other platforms that we can scale our impact in the world. Mm -hmm. Can I, can I add to that? Please. I think part of what's really interesting, too, is that we're at a place um, as a nation or as nations, however you want to say that, where 
our country is actually a whole series of living labs, and Vivo is the product of where it is. So we're located in north central Calgary, which is maybe the fifth quadrant, if you can see the joke in that, mm-hmm. uh, of our city. Um, we were When we were first built, there were, what, 80,000 people there, Cynthia? Yeah. Um, and now we're close to 140,000, soon to be 180,000, with very little presence in the mind of the rest of Calgarians. Uh, it also means that we don't have a lot of social infrastructure there. So this little box that used to be a rec center and is now something else has been forced to adapt and shift and change. And that's, I think, a really root, root cause to why, why we're doing the work we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And the work that you're doing has such an impact on the community. And I think when we start social innovation work, we have this vision of what's the community going to look like once we're a part of it. So what's your goal or the vision for the community with the work you do? I think one of the things that we're trying to do differently is what's the community's vision for itself Mm -hmm. and how are we helping it fulfill its potential. And probably one of the biggest shifts that we've had to make is how do we put down our expert hat and how do we say that we know what's best for the community. And the question around our social innovation work was really grounded in what does it take to raise a healthier generation and how does the community see itself and how can we help the community do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that with that vision for the community, it's guided a lot of your work. And what are some of the outcomes and things that you've been able to develop with that vision in mind? Well, the outcomes of it, there's a lot of discomfort in the mm-hmm. beginning because we, we are very prescriptive in the industry that we're in, which sport, wellness, health, um, because there's a lot of body of knowledge and science around that. And so when we actually lay those down and co-create more with the community, um, the results have been exponential because part of what we have gained the awareness around is that if, if a program fixed all the ills of the world, it would all be fixed by now. And, and in recreation, in the space that we've traditionally played in, we're famous for creating programs that fix things. And what the board of directors said is like, if we're doing such a great job, then why are all the outcomes and indicators going in the wrong direction? People are lonely, they're depressed, kids are not moving more, um, people are not socially connected, and yet that's the work that we're supposed to be doing. So we really had to look at things from a different, from a different perspective. So you're seeing this change as a result of your living lab approach. Could you share what that living lab approach is and what it looks like? I, I'll turn that over to Chris, but before I say that, part of our grounding was how can we take national and local issues like um, sedentary behavior, physical activity, social isolation, and how do we look what's happening in our own backyard first? So let's start with what's most important, what's happening in our own backyard, and then how do we scale um, to that the solutions and, and the knowledge translation and the knowledge sharing. And that's where the concept of the living lab kind of came to bear. Is like how do we look at ourselves first? Um, why why are we would we be trying to fix something outside of ourselves? Let's start within our walls and, and within our community and, and scale from there. And that's one of Chris's fabulous superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot to live up to. Um, so to kind of maybe pick up that thread Uh, and connect it back to what we said earlier about Vivo being in this really interesting pocket, Um, the context really matters. So sometimes I've heard Cynthia say that the area Vivo is a part of looks like the rest of Canada is going to look in 15 years. 44% self-declared visible minorities, 33% new Canadians, as much poverty as there is wealth, and an urban landscape that's actually making us sick. 
And this is sort of the root and the connection back to the project that I'll talk about, which is that right now, um, as much as we love the places that we live, if you live in a Canadian city or you move to a Canadian city, by and large, your wellness decreases. Your life expectancy goes down. And the reason is because most of the time, people end up moving less and being more isolated. So if you sit in a car or you live more alone, these two critical factors to your health and wellness decline. Those same two ingredients are what we're trying to involve in what we call the Vivo Play Project. Because when you move and you're connected, you're probably playing. Play is the most inclusive, adaptive, um, flexible way that we can think of bringing a community together and also letting them drive the action. Because play doesn't come with an expert. Play is sort of the primary um, operating system. You're out in the world, you're responding to a context, you're making a decision, and you're trying again. And it doesn't matter if you're slime mold or a bureaucrat. <laughs> like you can learn adaptively through that process. And so from a number of lessons that maybe, Cynthia, you can share a little bit more, some of the previous projects, uh, Vivo was able to build the, um, the backbone to launch something called the Play Project. So this is a four-year Public Health Agency of Canada and other funders-supported hybrid social innovation lab public health research project. And we're literally trying to measure what happens when we help North Central Calgary live the life they say they want to live which is being outside, playing their own way more often, and then showing the impact on chronic disease. So taking the rec center out of the arts and culture churn and moving us into primary health care. And so over these four years, we're using the neighborhood and the community as the lab to test both play environments, play ambassadors, technology that shows the impact, and then also the permission space and the co-creation that needs to live underneath all of that. So if you walk into North Central in four years, we're hoping it looks really radically different, but also the same. People out in the streets using their open spaces in ways that go beyond the playground equipment, um, outside at every hour of day in every season, moving their bodies with other people around them. Um, and trying to knit together some of the parts of the landscape that make living there really hard too. Like walking across North Central is really tricky. Finding a friend is really tricky. Yeah. I'd agree. I think one of the, um, what our co-partner our co Tracy Martin would say is that one of our TSN turning points mm -hmm. was being able to look at ourselves as part of an ecosystem. So as a recreation center, we had programs that were really helping individuals. But in order for that change to sustain what did the social network of that person need to look like, whether it's families, friends, peers, to be able to reinforce those changes that needed to happen. And then we looked out a little further and said, well, what are all the environments that are not reinforcing the behaviors that people want to make? So if, you, if we wanted a healthy eating program and they learn about good nutrition, but then the, the, you walk across to the school and they have junk vending machines or across to Max, and then all that learning is kind of lost. So how are we starting to knit together the ecosystem of the community at home, at work, at school, at play? How does that become a stronger community? And then how do those communities come together to create that population change? And we need to work in that breadth of individual community and, and sector change. Mm -hmm. That's great. I love that concept of the ecosystem, that it's not just the knowledge that we hold, but it matters about where we are in the spaces and what's happening in there as well. Yeah. 
That's great. And so within that, with all the moving pieces of social change work, there's a lot of tensions and challenges that you face. And with, I think you mentioned 15 years now running, yeah. I'm sure that there's been a lot of bumps um, unanticipated that come along and you have to adapt and move through those on the fly. And could you share some of those tensions with us and how you face them and how you got through them? Yeah, I'd love to, but I'd love to hear from Chris as to what's the tensions that you're facing right now. I could talk to some of the ones in the past, but what's facing ahead of you? Oh, man. Well, it's such an interesting question, I think, because we, when you run a big social innovation project like the Play Project, um, we had to get the funding three or four years ago. So we had to make plans based on our best understanding of what was possible. Um, those plans were honestly pretty cool and pretty sophisticated. They were done in collaboration with Inuweave uh, and with other friends and folk around in the province to try to structure a project that had a lot of good engines inside of it, whether those are tech or research or evaluation or um, co-creation. But sometimes the world changes around you. Um, and so I'd say that's one of the tensions, the VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity in our, in our world where, you know, Four years ago, developing a, an app for a phone was really tricky. Now, the big problem is data protection and privacy. So that like flipping of the world is an interesting tension. Um, another, I think, might be the expert community tension that still exists in a lot of our communities' minds. Uh, I think in terms of like, oh, well, what do I have to do? Tell me what to do. Uh, and we're finding ways to bring people together in really human environments like around a fire pit to start to have those conversations and to also have the systemic dialogues at a policy or at a an organizational level to try to unpack that and maybe the last like another interesting tension is this like having a center like having an operational place and trying to do r&d mm -hmm. because you have um our little team that's running this project is constantly challenged to race ahead and to really like to, to, to live all of those cliches of fail fast and test early, yada, 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 yada. Um, whereas we have other folk who are really grounded in the now, trying to manage very complex systems, some of them involving chlorine. And <laughs> like, there's a pool and yeah. like, and there's a roof and there's a, there's a, there's a, an energy bill. Like, whereas, we have the privilege of stable funding and um, key targets. They have to still operate in a market economy with a building in a physical place. And trying to move information and insight across those uh, differences is really a challenge. And it's one that I don't know that a lot of um, previous employment trains people for, like to get ready to serve and to catch at the same time. That, what, what does that make you think about, Tracy? Well, I just called you Tracy, Cynthia. <laughs> well, Tracy and I share brain. It's okay. Um, well, what, where my mind went is that we, like, people don't disagree with the change that we want to see in the world. Like, we want to end poverty. We want people to be healthier. But the current systems either don't fund them or don't support the change that we want to see. And that's probably one of the hardest things because the ambition's there. Um, and then on an individual level, like there's tons of evidence to show like this is what I should be doing, but to actually translate that into behaviors is a really difficult thing to do. So one of the notions that I really appreciate about what, um, I was going to call you somebody. <laughs> 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 We're going to get you nicknames as a result yeah, of this. <laughs> one of the things that I really appreciate about what Chris has brought in is this whole notion of what actually might make the change is, is mindset. 
because mindset leads to different decisions and different decisions leads to creating new systems and new ways of being and doing together. So if we were to think of an end goal for that to reduce some of these tensions, it would be that. But of course, change, changing mindsets doesn't happen overnight mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. It's a long-term <laughs> scalable project there. Yeah. And I would yeah. say that's also one of the things that we've done to reduce tension is that we really try and reinforce with people that this is generational change. Our vision is for healthier generations. We didn't get here overnight, mm -hmm. and it's going to take us um, some time to unravel some of, the, some of the trajectory that we're on in order to get to where we want to go. Mm -hmm. And that healthier generation you're referring to, um, Viva refers to it as Gen H, right? Yes. Yeah, Gen H, the generation healthy. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's great. Those are really interesting tensions that you brought up in the space. And... Moving through those tensions, we talked about the adaptations. So some of those, how has the work changed over the 15 years? It doesn't even have to be that far back. Even just in the past year, you can talk about um, how your approaches to things have changed based on those challenges and those tensions that evolve in the social space. Where do I even start? <laughs> <laughs> you have an answer. Well, I have a question for you yeah. actually related to this, Cynthia. So I came, to, I came to Vivo about six months ago, seven months ago but I've been a fan for a long time. And I think the sequence of learning projects that Vivo's gone through maybe in the last five or six years is an interesting comparison, like to start with Gen the Gen H instructor or four in one or something. Right. Could you talk about that? Well, I would say one of the first things that we had to learn was how to build a muscle. So coming from a traditional recreation center, the board said, what would it mean for us to be beyond the walls? And our ori original take on that was, well, then how do we just do yoga outside? <laughs> that was that was kind of like the initial iteration of taking ourselves beyond the walls. Um, and then we really engaged with Mount Royal University because w what our CEO at the time had said was um, academics and research isn't necessarily our um, in our bailiwick, so who can we partner with? And that was also a critical step because it meant that we weren't having to do this all on our own. And one of the other biggest learning is, is like this has to be done in partnership. And if we're trying to do this alone, then it's not the work that we should be focusing on. And Mount Royal really helped us focus on the question about what does it take to raise a healthier generation and where do you even start with that question? So we started with the whole notion of physical literacy and that uh, building children who are confident and confident from the very beginning will allow them to be physically active and competent and confident as adults and as as future parents and whatnot. And so uh, there was a 10-year uh, longitud longitudinal study in terms of looking at children's physical literacy. We took a cohort of kids who would register for recreation programs as they normally would. And then we had an intentionally designed physical literacy program that we called 4-in-1. So that was looking at all the environments of water, air, earth, I want to say fire, ice. but that was ice. It. ice. <laughs> it was probably ice. And um, and how do we develop competency in all those areas, and what are the differences? We also did a baseline on our on our own programs, and that was probably one of the ahas that we had as an organization: is how do we actually measure the change? And you can't do that without a baseline. So start with a question, um, have co have the community co-create what that question is, and have the the, the baseline to measure to inform to have the evidence to inform decision making. So we didn't have a set plan. It's sort of like this is the step that we need to take and then this is the next step that we need to take and then this is the next step that we need to take. Mm -hmm. 
there are a number of other projects that we've taken on in terms of that was the individual, but then how do we strengthen families? How do we look at built environment? How are we now um, looking, working at working with um, developers in terms of creating healthy communities? And then how do we be a change leader with the sector? Mm-hmm. Big questions. Big questions. Mm-hmm. If I can jump in, one of the things that really brought my eye back to Vivo was, so I was working for the city of Calgary in the Civic Innovation Lab. And uh, I kept seeing signals that there was this, I'm going to say it with a lot of love, like a weirdo organization <laughs> that wasn't playing in their lane. So I, like the, we helped, helped support a project called Creating Coventry just in terms of holding some space inside of City Hall for them to share their story with civic employees. And that came through, a, there was a partnership Vivo had with an organization that's now called Creating Coventry led by um, Dr. Morag McCabe. Uh, and they, they made and co-created the best green space master plan the city has ever seen entirely by themselves with evidence. They trained, like through Vivo's sort of support and expertise and some Mount Royal partnerships as well, they trained senior citizens to do systematic observation of parks and to use that data to inform design suggestions. That's not even something the city does. And so like there were these really cool signals that there was an organization in a place no one was paying attention to that was taking those iterative steps. And I really appreciate how you said that, Cynthia, about not necessarily knowing the path, but you know that there's a whole range of futures you could land into. So you're taking a step that, that keeps you adaptive. You're like, we learned something now, we're, but we're stronger or we're, we have more muscles. Thank you for saying that because when you're in the story, it's, it's harder to step out of it and reflect. And so having, having your point of view, I think, is really helpful, Chris. From seeing it from afar, and now you're part of the team. Yeah, you get swallowed up in the vortex. (laughs) (laughs) And you want to change the world, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're talking about that unknown path. So you have this big question that you know is going to lead to great things, and this path isn't clear. And this might take us on a bit more of a personal you as a change maker. How do you keep going in that path when it's almost you're walking blind? You don't know where it's going to lead to or what's going to come up next. How do you keep going through that? How do you S- think Cynthia's that? looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I need to think. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll answer really briefly personally. So I have, um, I've been privileged to be able to take the time to do some of that kind of anti-fragility work around knowing like what are the things, what are the ingredients of my life and practicing putting them together in different ways. So I know that I want to be able to take care of the people that I love, to be a change maker in my community, to... Um, be surrounded by creative ideas to be a better ancestor and to take care of my body and mind at the same time. And I've always been looking for places where I can do that. Um, Part of what I think Vivo is trying to do now is start to get more sophisticated about how we bring semi-structured processes into our work, like strategic foresight, like system thinking tools, to be able to build that muscle in the rest of our staff. So how can you practice knowing what you care about? How can you practice constructing a wide range of plausible and possible futures? And how can you test the choices that you plan to make against all of those futures? So again, it's sort of funny to think that a, this former rec center is spooling up a strategic foresight sub, sub team, but we are because we need that to survive and to be able to find comfort in the ambiguity and the mess. And that needs to be balanced by giving our teams the space and the courage to stake a claim on something 
to ground their purpose in something that they can really kind of hold on to so that when things are ambiguous and we're asking them to shift and move really quickly, which you do all the time, (laughs) Cynthia, uh, in a really lovely way, um, that we can still say, yeah, I'm still, we're still moving towards, it's not even North Star, it's just North. (laughs) My mind just went blank. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I'll start with, I mean, the the 100,000-foot view is that I have such faith and love for humanity, and I think we can be doing better. And that's always been my grounding. Um, And I know that in order for that change to happen, it needs to happen at a systems level. And, And it has to happen at a generational level. One of the things that we talk about in Vivo as an organization is we can talk about what kind of world we're leaving the kids, but also what kind of kids are we leaving the world. And if they don't understand it and they don't love it and they don't embrace it, then how can we expect them to care for it into the future? So that's a really important part um, that we can play. And I think there's also some really exciting wild opportunities in how are we preparing people to be able to live and survive and thrive in different environments. Like what, how are we preparing people for life in space and in Mars? And where would they go to train for these things? And why wouldn't it be us? And if we have the opportunity to try building healthier societies elsewhere in the universe, then, then why wouldn't we start trying now? Mm-hmm. That's great. And I hope that we can see that change in communities farther than just Calgary. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So with those adaptations, um, you talked about the ambiguity. And along with that, another A word, the assumptions too, that we go into something thinking, oh, it might turn out like this, it might turn out like that. Maybe I, maybe I can give some really like, in the weeds examples, and yeah. that might might inspire some some ten thousand foot view stuff, Cynthia. <laughs> so, um, in the play project, the short story is we're building play hubs, we're staffing them with play ambassadors. They help people be outside. That moves the dial on chronic disease. We measure the change through technology and through other evaluation methods. Cycle repeats. Um, what we're learning though is that. All of those things are very easy to describe as simple words, right? So what is a play hub? The moment you start to dig into that with a community, you start to say, well, is it, is it about the stuff? Is it about the place? Is it about the permission? Is it about um, the courage and the interest? Is it about their understanding? And so we start to say, like, it's never just about the stuff. It's now more about a network of all those things I just listed. And so... I freaked the team out the other day when I said we're we're deploying the play swarm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like when you when I started to try to disguise, describe it, I was like, well, if you just have one point on a map, you're not going anywhere. If you have two points, then you have a route. And if you have three, then you start to have a network or a field or a whatever that is. And so by spreading out all those things I described, permission, stuff, legitimacy, um, interest, context. We hope we can build, we can, we can kickstart an ecosystem. And so that's been an interesting one where we had to take assumptions about we thought things were simply and easily defined, and now they're not. I think the biggest thing that we've, and I've talked referenced this before, is that we've had to drop the assumption that we know better. And that community is somewhere out there, and it's not, it's in here. And and that has meant learning to be vulnerable vulnerable as an organization, as leaders in the community, as people, um, that we have the answers. 
And so sometimes that takes a little bit of courage to say, we actually don't know, but let's find out. Mm -hmm. And let's look at, let's be curious about it. And that has been the most powerful thing about the assumptions. And I found that for VO in particular, our assumptions have been always based around some type of fear. That some fear of failure or some fear that we're going to look bad or some fear that we're afraid to take a risk. You make, you make me think, Cynthia, too, about um, there's also this, this tension and this challenge that comes from, I don't think the community has been asked in a really meaningful and authentic way what they think for a long time. So sometimes they might not even have the words to tell you even though you're ready to go and ask. And so there's this mm -hmm. double double loop of learning that everyone needs to be involved in yeah. to say, wow, we're not just going to engage on a surface level, we're going to dig in together. Yeah. And we've all got to get more sophisticated but also more human about how we do that. One concrete example that we have of that is that um, because our catchment area has grown from 80 80,000 people to 145 and will grow from there is um, expanding the facility and originally we thought oh we'll add a field house and expand the gym but when we actually went out to the community what they asked for was social gathering space and so when we start listening to what the actual needs are of the community they want to be more connected to nature they wanted to have some more opportunities for education uh, more spontaneous play uh, and the design that emerged from that was an indoor park and, and that is going to be able to change the face of how we recreate and how we become a center for community. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And then that becomes a living lab inside of a living lab inside yes. of a living lab. <laughs> We're turning into inception. <laughs> but also seriously. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. the last thing we want to do is carve off a wing of this new building and say that's where innovation happens. Right? It's got to be the whole thing is a lab, but it's, it's nested and tessellated and just messy like a real like a garden gone wild mm -hmm. at vivo you're using some new language to help describe the work that you're doing uh that is social research and development social r&d for short could you share what social r&d means to you and why that language is so fitting to what you're doing yeah so if we're still also talking about how our approach to this work has changed over time um, we're starting to find some new language that we think sort of describes what we're doing, which is social R&D. You know, other sectors like the tech sector, the energy sector, the even the education sector do R&D. But we're at a point where the legacy systems of our communities and our governments aren't able to keep pace with the change that's around them. And so we actually need those organizations that happen to have deep ties into the community who are living in pockets of the future to start to think about social R&D in a serious way and to pair up and partner and find other folks who are willing to share social R&D agendas that aren't sitting in any one single organization's wheelhouse. And I think we're really at a point where we're starting to wonder who are the other friends who want to walk down this road with us and what's the topic we might talk about that we couldn't talk about on our own. Well, one of the big questions that we're trying to answer, because there seems to be limited research around, is like how do we actually measure the strength of collaborations? And how do we show that that actually makes a difference? So if there's anybody out there that has that, please be in touch because we're curious. We, we always come back to this notion that working better together is what's going to make a difference in the world. And how are we actually measuring that collaboration and that effort? Mm -hmm. 
Lovely. So to end on our positive note, we're going to go to the future a little bit. And what are you most hopeful for as you look ahead? I think I'm most hopeful for um, happiness and joy. I think that is one of the things that we need to not have to work so hard to achieve in life. And how does that become a way of being? And I think that we're work, the work that we're all doing in social R&D is, is to that end, is how we're bringing more joy and happiness. I'm really excited by what I see in our young people. Um, a few weeks ago, we hosted a youth leadership play evening called Youth Fest. It was designed by youth for youth. There were fire pits and puppy rooms and basketball tournaments <laughs> and they ran the whole thing and it was amazing and at one point there was a um, a makeup tutorial and a young person who I, I'm making the assumption I'm applying this label identified as queer uh, said to the person doing the makeup you know what I've never had a chance to wear makeup I would really love to and they sat on the chair in front of a hundred other young people and Again, I don't know this for sure, but my impression in that moment was that everybody put their phones away and they let that kid have the experience they needed to have without fear of it being spread. You know, they're part of a new immigrant community. There's a lot of risk in doing that. And I'm even tearing up thinking about it now because it was like they just knew. They're like, yeah, we're not going to mess this up for this other person. And when I see that, I think like my generation isn't doing that. My parents' generation isn't doing that. And I get very hopeful. That's beautiful. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time this afternoon to sit with me and reflect and think about those experiences that you've had throughout the journey. So thank you, thank you to both of you. This thank was you, wonderful. Elise. This was such a pleasure. Lovely. Now I'm tearing up. I'm looking at you tearing <laughs> up. It's like, ah, get social change. <laughs> and cut. And cut. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pause. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that the conversation you heard today was recorded on Treaty 7 territory, a land steeped in ceremony and history that, until relatively recently, was used exclusively by Indigenous peoples. We acknowledge the past, present, and future generations of Stony Nakoda, Blackfoot, and Tsitsina nations, as well as the Métis nations who have traditionally gathered in and cared for this place. This episode was produced by Alberta Social Innovation Connect, or ABSI Connect. You can learn more about our network, find our newsletter, and get inspired by and connected to other Albertan changemakers by visiting our website, www.absiconnect.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us out by sharing it with a friend and rating us on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. We'd also love to hear your feedback and reflections on this show and your ideas for future episodes. Our funding partner is the Suncor Energy Foundation, Lisa Pruden from the Edmonton Community Foundation supported us with editing and production for this episode. Theme music was created by the Fort McMurray Youth of the Soundforce Collective. <laughs>